is to make sure that we have local institutions fully embedded in the social, economic, and political fabric of these communities who are committed and dedicated to helping, valuing, and protecting the wares and rights of children. Hello, and welcome to Goalmakers, a podcast about world affairs and global development as told from the perspective of leaders, experts, and practitioners. Goalmakers is produced by Global Washington, a network of nonprofit, for-profit, and funder organizations working to improve lives in low- and middle-income countries. To learn more, visit us at www.globalwa.org. I'm your host, Joel Myers, Director of Communications for Global Washington. In this episode, we hear from Issam Ghanim. Originally from Sudan, Issam's journey to his role as president and CEO of Child Fund is a 360-degree experience within the humanitarian sector. Starting in academia in Sudan, he was recruited by CARE Sudan to help with their development and humanitarian efforts there, and then later in Somalia and India. After 21 years at CARE, he became president of Search for Common Ground to lead peace-building efforts, and in March of 2022 started his new role at Child Fund. Of his appointment, Lynn McDermott, Child Fund's board chair, stated, he was a standout among the 100-plus candidates we considered. With his remarkable breadth of experience, diverse contributions, already established credibility within Child Fund, and the unprecedented growth he led at Search for Common Ground. This interview, as you can imagine, is rich in information and wisdom. Issam talks about why and how they work with their 169 local partners across 24 countries. The crisis in the Horn of Africa, where 19 million are experiencing food insecurity and children are the most vulnerable, and how Child Fund is providing solutions and assistance to create better resilience, as well as how Child Fund engages in advocacy for child welfare locally and at the global level. Kristen Daly, Executive Director of Global Washington, interviewed Assam in September of 2022. Welcome, everyone. I am so privileged and honored to have the CEO of Child Fund with me today, Isam Ghanem, who is in Atlanta right now. His organization's based in Richmond, Virginia. Um, and I'm just thrilled to have this conversation with with Isam today. Um, as many of you know in the audience, Global Washington, we do these interviews to raise the profile of our members and introduce new CEOs to our community. So let's get started. Isam, you've recently become the CEO of Child Fund as of March of this year after really significant roles in other NGOs such as Care and Search for Common Ground. And you also worked at Child Fund earlier in your career as Vice President of Africa, the Africa Region and Vice President of Global Operations. Can you tell us a little bit more about why you came back to Child Fund to lead the organization? Thank you very much, Christine, and thank you, Global Watch, for what you do. Um, I would say two reasons, children and Child Fund. Those who have the blessing to experience serving children, they know exactly how it feels. And therefore, when I left Child Fund, I felt a void 
that no matter what, um, was unable to fill. Um, at the same time, I spent about 11 years of my professional life with Child Fund, working at all levels. And therefore, definitely, that is part of my life. And therefore, um, when, the, when I found an opportunity to come back, um, I, as you can imagine, it is a very delightful home, homecoming. Um, and I think uh, because of Children and Child Fund, um, I'm very thankful and grateful for the opportunity to serve again. Oh, that's wonderful. That's a great explanation. Um, and I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit more about your background and, and you've mentioned, and I think I know, I understand the motivation for you to come back, but what, what else motivates you? And tell, tell me a little bit more about your background. Yeah, yeah I think I, 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 I was born and, and, and raised in Sudan. Um, I continued my education um, in, in the country until I, my, my postgraduate degrees. And immediately after graduation, I was very determined and set to follow the academia. And in fact, I was part of the uh, teaching circles um, that is basically lined up in the university. And then um, at that time, CARE um, asked me to do a project for them. Um, and that frankly introduced me to this sector called international development. As they say, the rest is history. <laughs> that was in the mid 80s. Um, I immediately uh, started to be involved deeply in developing and designing programs to address the poverty situation in Sudan. And then I became um, one of the coordinators and leaders of the massive uh, humanitarian and relief response programs um, to the situation um, in, in Sudan at that time. Um, after I spent about three years, I was transferred to Somalia uh, during the peak of the conflict, also to lead uh, the humanitarian response um, in, in country. Um, I was based in Djibouti, but I was covering North Somalia and sometimes traveling to Mogadishu uh, to support the logistics and the distribution of food and the demobilization of ex-combatants. So I got a lot of experience uh, doing that and, and, and also a lot of fulfillment, frankly helping people to recover from situations like this. After that, I was transferred to India, where I was the administrator for one of the largest child development programs in the world. Um, um, and after that, I came to the headquarters. I became responsible for the program strategy and policy. Um, and then I was involved in the regional management. So I was the regional director for East Africa, for the Middle East, for Asia, for Europe. Uh, and then um, I came back to headquarters again to work on uh, global program strategies and policies um, for Care Child Fund. And four years ago, I, I jumped ships to join the peace building sector. Uh, we search for common ground at their president. So I really enjoyed that experience. I learned a lot about that important sector. I learned a lot about the interface or intersection between conflicts and development and, um, and et cetera. Um, 
So I would say that I work at all levels um, and, and, and I think I had a very 360 degree views about the world in and out. And, and I feel that I'm very well positioned to contribute to child fund at this stage. That's so great. It's wonderful that you decided to leave the classroom and <laughs> dive into this work. It's something actually Global Washington works on to, there's so much knowledge in academia and understanding of different strategies and to have someone come from that background, I bet was really useful. It's also really interesting that you did work in both humanitarian emergency relief conflict resolution Sorry. and global development, more the, the development side, because we've heard that sometimes those are those are very siloed. Correct. And um, actually, I'll, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Do you feel like the, the emergency response or conflict resolution is pretty separate from more the longer term global development issues? Or how do you do you have an opinion on that? Excellent question, Christian. Definitely, it has been on my mind for a long time. <laughs> First of all, it's an interesting journey. When I was working with CARE, I felt that I was focused on very broad poverty reduction and development agenda and very challenging. And whatever you do, you will not be satisfied just because of the nature of the uh, poverty eradication effort and, and, and issues and problems the Millennium Development Goals, et cetera, et cetera. And I felt the need also to try to focus. Um, and that's frankly one of the um, motivations for me to join a child-focused organization, Child Fund, only to discover that child development is a, also a very broad issue <laughs> um, that really um, require a lot of effort but it gives you a lot of fulfillment because at least you know some of the boundaries. Um, and, um, and after that, or during that journey, I became frankly very concerned about the fact that I have seen with my own eyes spectacular progress in development, in education, in health, in economic security, um, in food production, just name it spectacular success could be wiped out within a week of violent conflict. And I think we have seen again and again examples of that. That motivated me, frankly, to jump ship to the peace building sector, just to find that it's also a very broad and wide area. So I'm happy to come back <laughs> to child development, which I think in the middle. And throughout this journey, that sectoral distinction between child-focused organization, broad development organization, human rights organization, climate or environmental organizations is very artificial to say the least and not helpful in many cases. First of all, people don't live in these sectors. People are people, communities, children, families. They get affected by all of the above. And then I started really to think of humanitarian situations as a factor of time, not a sector. There is that window of time when people's livelihoods and lives are at, at significant danger. 
because of natural or man-made um, basically you know disasters and that window of opportunity there is a life before it and there is a life after it and that is very important frankly to continue to give hope to people so before it hits you have to work on development agenda you have to work on what is now called the resilience programming so that people are equipped to absorb the shocks when they come because they will come um, I, I recover from them and adapt to them after the humanitarian crisis and that construct frankly helped me to understand how these boundaries between humanitarian and development are useful in terms of the specialization and technical quality but frankly they are not helpful for people and and therefore we need really to make sure that they don't become barriers for collaboration for integration um, and for really bringing the uh, basically the voices of children families and communities at the center of that effort irrespective to how you call it development effort or the humanitarian effort but i understand that from the funding donors um, policies funding are classified differently for governments host governments these efforts are classified many differently so i understand why there is some sort of sectoral distinction but my feeling is that it is not helpful and it is very artificial given how people live that's such a great perspective and and maybe you can be a voice to to change some of those dynamics um that that's so great um let's talk a little bit more about child fund you 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 have but tell me more cuz it child fund works in 24 countries and they work through local partners uh, i think you have about 240 local partners right now so can you tell us how that works how do you work with local partners for your programming okay thank you First of all, Child Fund is um, a very mature, over eight years old organization. And therefore, we are very proud, frankly, um, in, in that heritage. Um, and yes, we acquire significant experience working um, with and through local partners. First of all, it is a central piece of our philosophy is that um, local ownership is absolutely essential of the development or humanitarian or any other effort, whatever you call it. As I mentioned, this classification are artificial. It's very important to have that local ownership and that local ownership doesn't mean or exclude um, technical support, financial support, um, you know, relationship building, you know, with others who are not from that uh, basically locality, whether the locality, the district or a country or a region, etc. And, um, and therefore, it is very central into uh, uh, part of our business model is that we work through um, basically local partners, channeling the significant resources we receive from our sponsors, who are very committed to stay with us for a long time, and every time I talk to them, they tell me, Sam, we are getting more than what we are giving in terms of fulfillment um, and making sure that we support children worldwide. And the relationship with these local partners is um, complex and multi-layered. First of all, our foremost objective or goal is to make sure that 
we have local institutions fully embedded in the social, economic, and political fabric of these communities who are committed and dedicated to helping, valuing, and protecting the wares and rights of children. That is very central to our um, you know, goal. And therefore, once we, 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 we make sure that we are on the same page, we help them organize themselves, as you know, in order to participate in that effort and to be committed and, and effective in uh, protecting the wares and rights of children, you have to have the organization. We help them in the organization. We help them in terms of the capacity building so that they are able to design and deliver and manage programs um, uh, with the quality that is needed, um, you know, infusing into that relationship the knowledge we have acquired worldwide. So what we learn in India could be helpful in Kenya, what we learn in Kenya could be helpful in Uganda, what we learn in Ecuador could be helpful in, you know, in Honduras or Bolivia. So we really cross-fertilize the knowledge base of these local organizations and equip them with the models and approaches that create impact. Uh, then we give them the opportunity to practice. And that is very important. When they practice, they make mistakes. This organization, they don't just show up and become efficient and proficient in everything. So we take them through that journey of evolution until they become knowledgeable, committed, organized, have the practice, then we help them with the issue of compliance so that they become good steward of the resources entrusted to them and us at the same time. And from time to time, we find that they, they, we need to help them and mobilize them to address some policy and advocacy issues at the local level, um, connecting, um, making sure that they know how to make sure that their voices are raised, make sure that they participate in the local development effort and the decision-making processes by the government, whether local district or national, help them to come as a community um, committed and dedicated to supporting children and, and how you know all of that I think is valuable. And then they go through cycles and our approach wants them to become is strong enough to be independent and to be able to work without us. And at the same time, to be able to continue to demonstrate their commitment to valuing and protecting the wares and rights of children long after we are gone or other people are gone. And in the majority of cases, these local organizations depend on volunteers from the area or the location and therefore they have very deep knowledge about the social, political, and economic situation. They know how to raise the voices of those affected, um, excluded, vulnerable uh, children and families. They know how to reach people who are really at need, even within these communities. They know a lot, um, and that frankly local knowledge is definitely priceless. When you combine that, with giving them really the right to own and influence and manage basically the effort in their area. Usually you get up um, you know, every morning, every week, every month, 
finding that you are really delivering durable solutions and that you are helping children to grow up from young, being young children to adolescents, to young adults, um, men and women uh, in the best possible way. And the majority of cases, um, we have seen examples of those children growing up and going even to other locations, getting their education and coming back, frankly, to work with these local organizations or contributing to their community in the best possible way. So it's a very interesting journey, very motivating, frankly, to work with these local organizations, but it is not a joke. The more they become strong, the more their needs and wants change, and the more you need to be nimble and adaptable uh, basically to accompany them through that evolutionary path. That's really great. I, I really like that you said it, it is a partnership and that you, it, it sounds like you have such an element of trust when you identify these partners that you know that they might fail, but you will stay with them and you will help build that capacity. And like you said, you have to be nimble, nimble enough to understand the changes rather than just going in with one mindset and forcing them to adapt. It sounds like you're adapting and, and really learning from these partners. It sounds like a, a really good, true partnership. It's a, it's a nice approach. Um, can you also tell me about, I know Child Fund works in emergency relief and emergencies around the world. And as we've been reading in the news and, and a lot of us are aware, there's, um, food insecurity, a, a really a, a pending famine in the Horn of Africa for many different reasons. But can you talk about that and Child Fund's work in the Horn of Africa right now during this emergency? Thank you very much, uh, Christine, for this question, because it is definitely um, a, a significant problem and frankly dilemma. Um, first of all, the Horn of Africa was hit by three cycles of major drought during the past 10 years. And that frankly devastated um, the production systems, devastated the subsistence economy that is also important in some of these um, you know, uh, countries. And we know the causes ranging from climate to conflicts to uh, basically significant access problems now. And as this situation is evolving and developing, um, the world witnessed also major changes um, that aggravated the situation. Um, the conflict in Ukraine, the inflation that is, or the economic crisis that are, you know, hitting many parts of the world, the hyperinflation, in, in many countries, the disruption of the supply chain, uh, the result of COVID and then COVID itself. So many things basically came converge, frankly, to create, it is already a crisis, but frankly, it is approaching and evolving to become a, a crisis with very catastrophic consequences. We have not yet lost the bottle. Still, there is time to mitigate and respond, but the time is getting short and the resources that are needed are getting bigger and the people started to move. 
And as we speak, there are about 19 million people, more or less, who are directly affected by an, an acute food insecurity um, in, in, in the Horn of Africa. And when you look at also the ability of the governments to respond and avert a major catastrophic situation, you will find that there are limitations. There are limitations in Somalia, there are limitations in Ethiopia because of what is going on inside that country. There are limitations in Kenya and the world is not paying enough attention to that looming crisis. Um, and when people start to move, they start to liquidate their assets. Um, they start really to make themselves uh, vulnerable uh, to major problems that are of great concerns. Um, and for us in Child Fund, there are specialized agencies that um, address food issues, distribution, that address water, et cetera, et cetera. Because all of these are problematic now in the Horn of Africa. Usually we come and try to focus on three major risks and threats that usually accompany any situation like this. We have seen them before, we are seeing them now, and we will see them. And therefore we focus on putting the mitigation strategies and plans and equip our local partners and governments and our own staff in order to address them. The fairest big one is the gender-based violence. When people in situations like this, we have seen an increase in gender-based violence. We also concern about the sexual um, abuse and exploitation of children. It happens sometimes because they are very vulnerable and needy. And when people in the move without the family and support structure, you, you, you get that problems also. And also of major concern to us is the loss in the learning opportunities mm -hmm. and education. Because that is very difficult, frankly, to compensate for. And we have seen before where a generation either lost education or they were unable to catch up in terms of the quality of education that they need so that they become competitive and, and well qualified, frankly, in the future. So these three areas, gender-based violence, sexual abuse and exploitation, and the loss in the education opportunities are of great concern to us and we tend to focus on them. Uh, we focus on them first of all, making sure that people understand the threats and the risks, families, parents, you know, uh, community leaders, governments, uh, from law enforcement to other um, formal and informal um, child protection mechanisms. They understand the risks. They understand some of the tactics and the strategies to make sure that children remain protected during this period, making sure that we make the connections. And if we have to intervene, we can intervene in order to address malnutrition issues in, in some of the locations, assist other um, uh, organizations when there is a very massive logistic operation to support targeting uh, those who are most vulnerable, um, make them you know, understand that 
usually it takes a long time. It takes maybe up to 18 months um, with a successful rainy season and agricultural season until these communities um, will feel that they have the ability, frankly, to adapt, recover and adapt from these you know, situations. Um, mm -hmm. And usually it is not just you know, people, it is the people, their livestock, their assets. There is a very complex uh, mosaic, frankly, of the issues that you need because people are people. People live um, and, and their life are affected by many of these factors. So we work basically with our, our country offices. Um, they work with their local partners. The local partners know the situation very well, equip them with the knowledge and resources and practices, deploy resources to them um, in order really to address uh, some of these issues. We started to focus on what we call the resilience effort. And the resilience is really to equip these local communities with the skills and abilities and resources to absorb the shock, um, to recover from it, and then adapt. Because usually after all of these major crises, a new economic, social, and political situation will basically will evolve. And if you are ready for it, you can prosper and, and adapt quickly. If you are not ready for it, you will continue to become excluded and vulnerable um, as a result of the many issues that usually will show up as a result of that. Mm. So I would say it is a major forgotten emergency that is happening now and it's approaching, as I mentioned, catastrophic um, you know, um, situations. Um, and, and I am happy that there is at least um, a gleam of hope where governments and donors started to focus attention on it compared to everything is about Ukraine and other places. Um, um, but I think massive, mobilization need to happen quickly. And definitely as Child Fund, we call on all the governments and the major donors and the international organizations to give attention really to this uh, looming crisis. And the crisis, as I mentioned, is, 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 is reaching a catastrophic acute level. Um, and, and I think there is chance to avert it. Um, I, I would say, all the major international organizations are aware of the situation, collaborating and trying basically to gear up to prevent loss of life and livelihoods in that particular past. It's, it's really interesting to me to hear that you're talking about, you know, mobilizing large partners and governments and, and understanding the systemic issues and how to prevent famine. But Child Fund also has this beautiful approach of really child focus mm -hmm. and understanding that within these, within a systemic issues of mobilizing for food security, a child could be lost to trafficking or right. could be yeah. lost the education around that. So that, that child focused approach allows you to maintain that focus while also understanding the broader context. It's, it's, it's a, a great approach, I think I'm just realizing. And, and it sounds like with your background and your understanding of these complex systems and, and crises, um, you have a great background for it. So yeah, well, um, we'll continue to monitor, especially at Global Washington. We're 
really focused on, on making sure we understand the, the issues in the Horn of Africa and continuing to support our members doing that work. Um, so let's turn to another program though too that Child Fund does. Um, I know you also work not just in Africa, but all over the world in village savings and loan. So uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that in this program that you really do strengthen kind of the economic sustainability, the income generating activities for families. Can you tell me a bit about that? Sure, and thank you again, Christine, for these good questions. <laughs> um, yes, I think from um, my experience and our experience, the economic security um, and sustainability, especially when it comes to women, is an absolutely powerful factor for child well-being and progress. And there, there is enough knowledge and data and evidence that you know um, the financial sustainability, especially of women and families, directly relate to the emotional, psychological, and social and physical development um, of children because they affect everything. And therefore, um, whether in Kenya or, or Uganda or Ethiopia or India, our programs focus on um, providing very specific services um, to primarily women, um, frankly, to achieve a level of financial um, security or economic security. This includes, um, first of all, upgrading and, and strengthening the financial literacy among women so that they understand basically what it needs to, to have, what needs to happen in order to be financially, you know, uh, sustainable, uh, how to manage your limited assets, um, why savings are important, how you can mobilize savings from a large number of people to help. And frankly, in the majority of cases, there are traditional informal mechanisms. Usually you find them in these villages. Everywhere you go, you will find that women come together and share food or poor resources when there is a wedding or a funeral um, or provide little in a circular way for women to take an amount of money and do something um, uh, you know, that is usually related to her family or children. And then it moves from one woman to another woman. That's really the genesis of this woman um, you know, or, or village saving and loans. Once you work on this financial literacy, then you need to, we need to help them to access capital. Um, and that usually comes through loans um, and different models and tactics are used to make sure that these loans continue to be repaid and, and mobilized and, and, and increased. Um, I think most of the programs, if not all of them, have provided evidence that the repayment rate among women groups is very high compared to other models. So it makes sense. Um, and then, when they started to access these funds and loans um, to run a small farm or, you know, or, or chicken or a small business, you know, you, we also work with them so that they are equipped with some of the discipline and practices and tactics and strategies that allow them to manage that small enterprise in a good way and expand it. 
um, and do it in the best possible way, which will require expanding their knowledge about how to market the produce, what to produce, um, how to capitalize basically the, the that they have, how to manage this balance between consumption um, and, and, and capitalization or investment in your small business, um, how to use the proceeds in a way that could be cycled back into your capital. There are so many, many issues. Again, equipping them with the techniques and tactics and models, let them make the decision that they know best and best for them. So I think in nutshell, this is how our you know, teams work with women groups, um, I think throughout the world, um, and in order to help them, frankly, um, make progress in achieving that financial, uh, financial sustainability. And I think just from my own experience, anecdotally, when women become financially and economically um, you know, secure, you will find that they're spending um, their money making sure that their children get the best nutrition they can afford. They make sure that they live in, in, in a house or a place or a shelter that is you know, secure. Um, they pay the school fees or support them with the shoes or whatever that help children, frankly, to go to school um, you know, and, and learn. If there are need for fees, they pay the fees, um, clothes. So really they spend the money that they accumulate, um, frankly, usually on their children, more or less. Um, and that's, I think, that's why I think it, for us, it's the direct uh, relationship between women, financial and economic security and child well-being and protection. There is a direct link. And that's why I think we focus our effort also on achieving that. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. That's, you know, as you said, proven time and time again in almost every geography. So uh, that's that's fantastic. It's it's a great program to, to have, again, thinking about the well-being of the child. So that's great. Um, so in addition to the direct service programs that you've been talking about, um, how does Child Fund engage in advocacy to promote the, the health and well-being of children globally? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a very important part of our work. And, um, and again, Advocacy um, is an approach uh, to change certain um, regulations or enact certain policies or mobilize actors, frankly, duty bearers, basically, to um, do their job and ensure that services um, are provided and the rights are protected, promoted, um, you know, among basically the communities we serve. And this requires us to work at also multiple levels. There is a local and national level with governments, local governments or national governments, um, helping them to understand the need to enact certain policies and implement them um, or change certain policies when they are not helpful um, or counterproductive to child well-being and development, but also at the global level where we partner with other agencies um, in frankly pro promulgating and, and developing and you know, uh, promoting um, policies to protect um, basically the lives um, and livelihood of children, whether that is among the donor countries in terms of funding, 
um, uh, or legislation that ensure that there is a space um, by law and, 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 and there is a requirement to make sure that children issues are covered. Um, you know, and we collaborate with partners in Europe um, through our alliance members uh, throughout the world. In the US, we are definitely focused um, on advocacy issues that promote the well-being of children. Um, you know, so we engage with in an advocacy with the US government, working with colleagues with the US aid and the State Department and other um, federal entities in order, frankly, to contribute to the knowledge base related to the, to the issue, um, making them basically equipped with the evidence and the field examples that make the discussion um, uh, you know, and, and the promotion of a specific idea um, as important as possible, um, ensuring that when the discussion about the appropriation of funds at the Congress, um, all the staffers um, are equipped with the knowledge and data and experiences that will allow the arguments to be made in the best possible way uh, in foreign assistance and other key pieces of the legislation. And from time to time, we focus on certain acts. For example, now we are focusing on the GERS Lead uh, Act, which is, as you know, people know, that's a very bipartisan effort. Uh, we are grateful, definitely, to the sponsorship uh, from uh, Representative uh, Republican Derek Kilmer, and we we we, we hope that very soon other uh, senators like Cantwell and Murray will join forces to co-sponsor this because it is an extremely important act. It will ensure that girls have the tools, approaches, and, and the support they need. First of all, to address this parity or gap, gender gap, and also to be equipped to be leaders in the future. And that doesn't come um, by chance. It, we have to mobilize, we need to make sure that there are resources um, for children to develop the confidence, um, to have the experience, to practice how to become leaders later on. Because when we will know when, when women become leaders, the world around them will change and our world will change. And, and I think this kind of parity or differences um, in itself is a problem. But I think there is a wider interest on making sure that the style and the approach and the focus that is usually embedded in any woman leadership, um, which is useful to the world, um, is there um, when these young children becomes, you know, women and leaders uh, basically in the future, in the U.S. and worldwide, and and I think there is a wider interest on this issue, I would say globally more than any um, of the time I remember before, um, but there is shortage of the means. Um, and frankly, to help this, I, what I, I hope will be a movement um, to really change the architecture um, of global governance and global leadership um, for years to come, I think. And, and that I think will make this world a better world for everyone. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. It's it's so important to continue the 
education, both within the United States with our elected officials and, and the understanding to create that constituency and political will to, to make these things happen. So thank you for your work in that. So yeah. good. This has been so fascinating just to learn about child fun and, and understand your work there. And I know you've only been in this position for a few months this year, but can you tell us a little bit more? Do you have a vision for child fun for what you want to see in the future? Absolutely. And definitely this is also a collective vision. We definitely want a child fund to become um, a network of offices and federated organizations that include voices from the global south that is working in a focused manner on reaching more children and their families um, to achieve resilience, to have the capacity uh, basically to become, uh, to improve their lives and become um, adults in the future. Um, and we want this child fund um, movement uh, to become global in nature, rooted locally in the knowledge and relationship we have with local partners. And collectively, we are working um, with the resources that we need in order to help children mm -hmm. um, realize their rights and achieve their potential, uh, focusing on giving every child everywhere the best start in life, the best start in life, um, so that basically they become useful adults to themselves, to their families, and to their uh, communities in the future. So that best start in life is definitely a very important focus on us, for us, yeah. That's beautiful. It, it's so good. And again, I, I, I really appreciate and um, love to hear about the, the, the child focus and, and having that be the driver and thinking about the health and well-being of that child throughout their youth and, and what that would mean for them going into adulthood. So fascinating. Well, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Uh, I wish you the best in, in all your work. It's been fascinating to, to get to know and um, hopefully we can host you in Seattle next time you're out here as well. Great, thank you very much, Christine, and to Global uh, you know, uh, WA. Uh -huh. <laughs> I really appreciate the opportunity and thank you very much for what you do and, and I appreciate it. Wonderful, well, thanks again and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll see you soon and thank you so much, keep doing the good work. Okay, thank you very much and thank you, Joel, I think on the background. <laughs> Excellent, take care. Thank you again, Isam Ghanim. Child Fund clearly is in excellent hands with your leadership. In our next episode, we talk to another new president of a major influential international organization, this time a first. Jennifer Jones is the first female president of Rotary International. And we had the privilege of talking with her just weeks before she formally started her new role in July of 2022. So the strength of our organization is our diverse perspective. And when we all bring something, our own unique selves to the conversation, it makes us stronger. And so we need to have everyone's voices reflected in what we do. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Goalmakers, a podcast about world affairs and global development. 
For more information about our thriving global development community, global news, and member community events, visit us at www.globallaw.org. Until next time, take care and be safe.